0: and welcome to Under the Grid, the podcast exploring the history of Milton Keynes from the collections team at Milton Keynes Museum. We delve deep, and not so deep, into time to tell you some of our favourite things about the area and share our discoveries from working at the museum. I'm Catherine, I'm the archivist. I'm Sarah, I'm the collections officer.
1: And I'm Tabitha, I'm the archaeology curator and collections conservator.
0: This episode, we are without Sarah. We've uh, let her go off on annual leave, haven't we? Into the world. Mm, Yeah, I don't know why we gave her permission for that. (laughs) But we haven't been left to our own devices. We have guests this week. We've got um, Ellie Broad, who is the Project Engagement Officer at the Parks Trust, and Julie Ireland, who is a volunteer at the Parks Trust um, on the Great Linford Manor Project Um, And they're going to tell us a little bit about the Parks Trust and the Great Linford Manor Project. Um, Hi Ellie, hi Julie. Hello. Um, Lovely to have you with us, thank you for coming. Um, Do you want to give us a little bit of history on the Parks Trust and what you look after Ellie?
1: Yeah, great. Um, So the Parks Trust is a really interesting organisation. Um, Lots of people in Milton Keynes have probably heard of it because of walking through your local park or your local woodland Um, But there's still lots of people who haven't heard of it And that's because it works a little bit differently to how most places in the UK operate Um, so the Parks Trust is an independent charity um, and we're self-financing which means that we make our own money Um, And this comes from um, a portfolio of different properties that are all around the UK Um, And we have a very talented team of property people who look after those for us and get income. Um, And that pays for all of the activities that we get to do around the park. So looking after the parkland, uh, the heritage sites, which I'll talk a little bit about today. Um, it pays for our staff. um, It pays for looking after everything, basically. Um, And it's a really good model. It works really well. Um, And as a a result, uh, we have really high quality parklands, um, which everybody in Milton Keynes can benefit from. Um, we have had the green flag award for our parks many many times um, oh, Which is a great measure of having you know clean tidy well looked after parks um, The Parks Trust was formed in 1992 um, so it's actually our 30th birthday year, which is oh, quite nice exciting <laughs> uh, So yeah, it's a really great time to be uh, part of the Parks Trust um, And it's a really great time for us because we're just coming to the end of our great Linford Manor Park project Um, which Julie and I will talk a little bit about today. Um, But that's just one of many heritage sites that we actually look after across our estate. We have uh, 6,000 acres of land across the city, uh, which is a really huge amount when you think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that includes so many different heritage sites. So some listeners might have heard of Bancroft Roman Villa. Um, So that was discovered in 1971 um, and excavated over 15 years. And nowadays you can go and look at the Roman Villa um, you sort of The base of it is preserved, so you can have a walk around and imagine you're a Roman, if you want to. Um, we've got the Great Linford brick kilns. Um, these were built in the 1800s, um, and they were used for baking local clay into bricks, which were then taken along the canal to places all around the country. Um, we have the ruins of St Peter's Church, um, parts of which date to the 12th century. And we've got loads and loads of moated sites, deserted medieval villages, earthworks, modern Bailey castles. So when people say Milton Keynes doesn't have any history, they're quite wrong, really. I just need to <laughs>
0: come to see
1: you and you will time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're here today to talk a little bit more about Great Linford
0: Manor Park. So should we kick that off? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Julie's going to talk a little bit about the history. So we were kind of wondering things like when was the manor built and what was there before and all that kind of stuff. Can you tell us about that?
2: I can. Um, Well, if you come to the Manor Park, and please do, it's beautiful. Um, The oldest building on the site, which isn't actually part of the park, is the church. Um, It's a very lovely church and will have overlooked the comings and goings for many centuries. Um, It could have been there in Saxon times, it's certainly been there since the 12th century. It's worth a visit inside, there are memorials to the families who have lived and and died here. The written history of the manor dates back to the Doomsday Survey. So William the Conqueror, um, who parceled out land to his followers. And so we have some history of of Great Linford going back then. We have a little history of um, who bought the manor. If you stand in the car parking area for the Arts Centre and look towards the manor house, you're in fact standing on the site of the medieval manor house. In 1980, archaeologists were able to uncover the foundations and give some idea of what the medieval manor house looked like. Um, It was likely very much the typical manor of those times, um, built of stone, probably two stories with a thatched roof. It had a central passageway, four rooms with fireplaces, quite grand to the medieval villagers who may have perhaps come in to pay their rents. Uh, There was separate bakehouse and brew house, um, giving some idea of the work that was done. Um, The bakehouse shows evidence, or rather the foundations show evidence that the bakehouse burnt down at some point, which is why it was separate from medieval manor house. Anyway, the property changed hands a number of times until it was bought by Sir William Pritchard in 1680. 79, I think, um, who was a London merchant and had been a former mayor of London. Um, this was a time of great economic development and there was new wealth coming, and these newly wealthy wanted to buy a country pile um, to enjoy their time away from the poor air of the city, but to show off to their friends. However, the medieval manor house didn't quite fit that description too well. The land was great. The house was probably getting a bit tatty by that point. It had been added to, bits knocked down, but it was no longer the fashionable building that the newly rich would like to bring their friends to. So, in fact, he knocked down the medieval manor house and actually a number of surrounding houses, little cottages, um, and built a new manor on a site a little lower down. This is the manor house you see now. And in fact, it would have been fairly modest in its time, not perhaps even as grand as the rectory nearby. Over time, of course, this house was then added to, re-fronted, wings added, um, and it became the house that it is today. I mentioned there the rectory. The rectory is also not a part of the park itself. It's in private hands but its previous owner in times past is a fascinating character whom I refer to as the Reverend Doctor, Mm -hmm. Richard Napier, Mm -hmm. who came to serve as Rector of St Andrews in 1590, but wasn't terribly fond of rectoring. In fact, it is recorded that he had something like a panic attack in the pulpit and thereafter decided to call in some younger friends to do that part of the ministry whilst he did the things that he was best at which included medicine, actually doctoring of his parishioners but not just those who are local but far and wide. Great Linford became known throughout this area because of the Reverend Dr Richard Napier He kept copious notes of all his patients. Some of them were the poor locally who paid a penny or two. Some of them came from London or perhaps sent specimens from London. And we have this lovely visual image of carriages galloping up Watling Street with a page holding a flask of urine at arm's length. (laughs) And this is quite possible. Um, Medicine at the time was based on the theory of the four humours and that an imbalance in one of those humours was the cause of your problems. Those humours being black bile, yellow bile, blood and phlegm. The children love this. (laughs) And of course, treatment included bloodletting, leeches, purges, lotions and potions that concentrated on ridding the body of those excess humours. However, his... Practice was quite interesting because he was also an astrologer and he took a detailed note of when the symptoms first started and created an astrological chart to note the state of the heavens at that exact moment. He would also employ alchemy and the occult as well as prayer and exorcism. He had the ability to consult with the angels, Gabriel and Raphael, and these are all in his notes. Those notes were not perhaps, not surprisingly, not valued in his time, um, and they were donated many years later to the um, Bodleian Museum in Oxford, where they resided again for many years. But recently, they've been taken out, dusted off, and are currently being transcribed by um, Cambridge University and give a fascinating insight into the medicine of the Jacobean period. Our Reverend Dr. Richard Napier um, had to skirt the um, possible accusation of witchcraft. Um, He clearly was pious enough to avoid that. We were still burning witches at that time. But he predicted the date of his own demise He apparently died on his knees praying, with knees horny from much praying, and was buried in the church in 1634, or 35, I cannot remember which. (laughs) Um, And so he's a fascinating character.
0: He sounds incredibly ahead of his time. Like he, he had a real holistic
2: view of health. He was, and some of his medicines included, for the rich of course, included gold, which is currently used in ca- clinics for rheumatism, so he was very much ahead of his time. Um, his holistic approach included counsel to the sick person. I believe the angels just, his consultation with the angels just asked whether or not the sick person would live or die. And then he would perhaps know how to gear his treatments or his counsel. Um, but, but yes, he's absolutely fascinating. And anybody that would like to know more can look up the Casebooks project online. You will see that Doctor's handwriting has been appalling for centuries. Um, it's very, very difficult to read. And because it's it, there are astrological charts amongst the writing... Um, But we do get an idea of some of his patients, some of his prescriptions. Um, The most notable one that we love to talk about at the park is what we call pigeon slippers.
0: What? (laughs) Yes, indeed.
2: Indeed. A pigeon was a, a bird of evil, but you could harness its power. And so one of his prescriptions to a young woman who was suffering from fits and other discomforts was to take a pigeon cut it in half and bind it to the soles of the feet to draw out the ill humor um, it is delightful to tell this to the children and they love <laughs> it
0: oh, that's wild <laughs> not very good grip
2: either <laughs> <laughs> <very good>, okay. <laughs> i don't believe you were to walk on them i believe <laughs> you were to sit there looking one um, <laughs> until the ill humor was was drawn from your body Why but a oh wow <laughs> yes totally fascinating shoes
0: Pigeon shoes. Pigeon slippers. Yes. You would not get that nowadays, would
2: you? No. (laughs) Thank goodness. Yeah. So anyway, um, somewhat later, Sir William Pritchard um, also built the almshouses on the site at Great Linford. A very interesting situation for them, right in view of his home, his new fashionable home, And where he would walk past them on his way to the church. They weren't put to one side, they were actually almost a central feature and they are very lovely. Um, There is a central schoolhouse that is three stories, and there are six single story, single room almshouses, three on each side. And he left a bequest that would pay for a schoolmaster and also pay for the poor to have at least a very modest income. So those who were deemed worthy to have an almshouse were certainly very, very fortunate. The rooms are quite small. They're actually quite cold. Um, They were provided with a fireplace and cupboards. Um, And these almshouses, we haven't really been able to see much of recent years but ellie will certainly tell you more about plans for the future lady sarah pritchard the widow of sir william pritchard left in her will six pounds per annum to provide the six arms men or arms women at christmas a gown and breeches for a man or a gown and petticoat for a woman and from 1803 the alms people were to receive a shilling and sixpence a week instead at Christmas in lieu of clothing. It wasn't a great deal, but I'm sure it made such a difference in their lives. I believe that um, Sarah Pritchard also ordered beds for the mm-hmm. almshouses. Um, when she saw the state of, of whatever they were sleeping on at that time, she ordered beds with canopies, presumably to keep the spiders and the dirt out.
1: <laughs> so after Lady Sarah died, um the Pritchards didn't have any children of their own. So the Great Linford estate passed to uh Sir William Pritchard's nephew, who was an Uthwat. It's a slightly unusual surname. Nobody's really quite sure how to pronounce it, Uthwat, Uthwat. We've heard Uthwaite, all sorts of different pronunciations Brilliant. and spellings in the records. Um, and this family then held the estate for a really long time, up until the 1970s, when the very last Uthwot, um kind of sold up the manor. Um, they're quite an interesting family, although their historic records are few and far between. Um, there seems to be a bit of a gap in records relating to the parkland and the gardens. Um, the main thing that's missing is any kind of maps or plans for what was created. Um, which when,
0: would have been very useful for <laughs> Which would have been very
1: useful, as I will come on to. Um, but we can see in the landscape some traces of what the Athwart family did. Um, so the manor itself is privately owned nowadays, um, but in the gardens there are remains of a formal garden that was put in um, probably in the 17th century or very early 18th century. Um, at a time when kind of formal gardens was all the all the rage, that's what you you would do if you had the money, you would make something like a parterre. It's kind of similar to what they have at Versailles. so sunken gardens, very neat lawns, topiary, that kind of thing. Um, so the traces of that are still in the behind the walls of the manor garden. Um, but a little bit later the fashion changed um, in garden design, and people moved towards slightly more rustic. Um, Design. So you have people like Capability Brown, who some people might have heard of. Um, He's responsible for the landscape at Stowe. Mm -hmm. Um, So people like him came along and they were trying to turn everything back into nature, basically. Um, So very different from the landscape that the manor might have had originally. Um, And it's traces of this kind of landscape that are still found across the park. So if you were to walk down to where the ponds are, kind of in the middle of the park these were probably created at that time. So we think that they were um, kind of a Georgian creation from what was originally a stream that ran down from the high street out, out of the park and into the River Ouse eventually. Um, it might have been that they were made into fish ponds at some point in the medieval period, but we don't really know because, like I mentioned, there's not very many records. <laughs> um, but yeah, at some point under the Uthwatts, we don't know who in particular either, um, they were created into these ponds. And... Um, Great Linford's quite special because um, it's built on a limestone kind of outcrop where the rest of Milton Keynes has got clay bedrock. Um, so what happens at Great Linford is you get lots of uh, natural springs popping out of the bedrock. Um, so there's one in the park itself, but there's also one up at the other end of the village. Um, and these these kind of pop water out of the ground, um, and that's what the Uthwart family used to create these water gardens that we've got in the park now. So what happens is the water comes out of the bedrock um, and it goes into this round pond that's right in front of the almshouses and from there it flows into the second pond which we call the canal pond um, because it's now next to the canal and then we think there might have been a third pond um, which was taken out when the canal came Um, but we're not 100% sure about that again because no records. And then there's a fourth pond on the other side of the canal um, which is where the water kind of ends up and then it trickles down a grand cascade and then goes out into the River Ouse eventually. So it's all very dramatic Um, and it was kind of all the rage to have these water gardens in your landscape if you could afford it. Um, I think there's a really great example at Fountains Abbey up north if anyone ever has been up there that's like water gardens on a massive scale. So that's kind of like top of the range. This was kind of not that fancy you know it was kind of you know it had a (laughs) lot they had a lot of money but not i always think about them as being kind of equivalent of the bennets maybe in pride and prejudice not really wealthy but kind of you know doing all right for Mm -hmm. themselves um the other things that are interesting about the landscape that you can see today are things like the doric seat um which is kind of a little folly i suppose we call it so if you don't know what a folly is it's basically like a ornamental building that doesn't really have a purpose it's kind of pointless and um, there's lots of them at stowe if anyone's been to visit there yeah. um the one at great linford is quite small um and it's in a classical style and we've got some photos of what it looked like originally because it survived up until the 1970s but then it was vandalized unfortunately mm. um so it was kind of inspired by the classical world because at this point in history people if they had the money were going out on grand tours around Europe and nicking all sorts of things from all over the world and stuffing them into the museums <laughs> and uh, it's all a bit not so good nowadays. Um, but people were obsessed with the classical world so that's why it gets its name the Doric seat because it's got Doric shaped columns which basically taper towards the top so it's, that's what it's named after. Um, And the Doric Seat was built as somewhere to have a picnic, to walk out to, to look out over the views you would have had from the lands on this side of the canal, before the canal, out uh, over the River Ouse. Um, And the Doric Seat is situated in something called the Wilderness, which is a kind of quintessential feature of this type of garden. Um, You know, how I was saying about having a rustic landscape. Well, this is quite a key part of that. It looks wild, but it actually isn't wild. Um, and this is mentioned in Pride and Prejudice I don't know if Julie's looking for a quote <laughs> but I think um Lady Catherine de Burr who's a really does. snooty lady yes mm-hmm. goes to vid- visit the Bennets and she says oh it's a lovely little wilderness you've
2: got there a which
1: prettyish a pretty- wilderness that's, <laughs> that's oh, it backhanded, um, compliment. backhanded compliment exactly <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> kind of belittling the Bennet family for their mm. little wilderness mm-hmm. um but the one up Great Linford is lovely it's got lots of nice meandering paths through it now which visitors can go and enjoy so it's a lovely place to be um I've spoken a bit about how um the canal is now in the middle of the park. Mm. Um the canal was cut in 1800. So if you think about it, the Aufworth family would have spent lots of money doing up their lovely garden and having it all landscaped. And then probably only about 50 or 60 years later, the Grand Junction Canal Company decided that they wanted to build a canal right through the middle of the park. Um which might be reminiscent of HS2 of today, where they're just compulsory purchasing parts of land. Um, It's all a bit controversial. Um, This happened under the kind of uh, rule of Frances Uthwat, who had married into the Uthwat family. She used to be called Frances Chester, and she actually grew up at Chichley Hall, which is just outside Milton Keynes. Um, So she married Henry Uthwat in 1757. Um, And they lived together quite happily for a few years, but unfortunately Henry died of tuberculosis um, not long afterwards. So Frances spent a lot of time at Great Linford Manor on her own. Um, But being a woman, this is where I get a bit feminist, (laughs) being a woman at the time, um, she wasn't really trusted to be in charge of the estate. So a series of male trustees were appointed to kind of keep things in check. Um, And one of these guys was called Sir Roger Newdigate and he had collieries, so coal factories, workshops up in um, Warwickshire. So when the Grand Junction Canal Company came to Francis and said, can we cut the canal through your garden? Well, I think Sir Roger Newdigate was probably like, that's a great idea, Francis, definitely do that. Because yeah. obviously he'd make lots of money shipping coal to and fro. Mm. Um, so poor Francis kind of had a hands tied um, and had to agree to this happening. Um, but waiting in the wings uh, was a guy called Henry Uthwart Andrews. Um, he was the next to inherit. And he was rubbing his hands together with excitement about the prospect of inheriting
2: Great Infant Manor.
1: Was he her son? He No, is... he
2: was, he's, he's quite a distant cousin. It seems quite often um, the estate was not inherited by a direct line um, son. Again, sadly, uh, Francis and her husband had had no children, no living children that we know of, and so Francis was there as a widow getting older as the canal company started um, making their offers for the land, and um, she had great difficulty saying no to anything because mm. her hands were so tight. Probably yeah. a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, lots of pressure. So um, Henry was obviously devastated at the idea of the canal cutting through his inheritance, um, so he campaigned quite fiercely against the canal um, and I think he's, he's quoted as saying something like, would any gentleman like this nuisance on his land or in view of it or something like that.
2: That's right. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. There's a little notebook in the archive in Aylesbury where he kept copies of his correspondence and so you see copies of both his letters to Francis and hers to him and his letters to government officials. Um, His pen was aflame. He was furious. At one point he wrote, there was a determined resolution to keep me in the dark. Um, But yes, he was quite outraged at where the line of the canal was dug, which, so far as he understood, was supposed to have been much further away from the Pleasure Gardens. Um, And he felt that Francis had not got proper value for the land. Um, And and generally, this, this little book contains a history of a very, very frustrated man who couldn't do anything about the Grand Junction Canal Company just literally digging their way through his beautiful pleasure gardens.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, yes, not very pleased. Um, the only kind of concession that he managed to get was to have the towpath on the other side of the canal to the parkland. Um, so the parkland side, you can see today, is still quite rough on the edge. Um, it's a bit more wild. So that's that's the only thing that they could really agree um, but from this time onwards, the the kind of, the state sort of went into decline. So you can imagine having your estate cut in two is not brilliant. Um, I'd be furious. You'd be furious, <laughs> yeah. And if you think back to the Doric seat that I described, you no longer had that lovely view of rolling hills out over the countryside. And, you know, the canal comes right past it, um, which today is lovely. Um, but you can imagine at the time it wasn't just used for leisure; it was used for business. You it's know, way there were industrial, yeah, it? stinky, noisy canal boats going up and down all the time. Lots of workers. It wouldn't have been a, a very nice thing for the Arthur family. Um, and also, it cut off the fourth pond um, that's now marooned on the other side of the canal. So it's a little bit interesting when you visit the park today because that fourth pond is a little bit harder to find. Um, so yeah, it's just not great for the Arthur family
0: basically. And to get to that fourth pond you have to go along railway walk don't you? You have to go along Which railway is another walk. another kind of annoying thing for us. Yes <laughs> so really.
1: not only did they have the canal come through but not long after um, the railway was decided to be put right along the same route um, so I think that, that opened in the 1860s or so so sort of 60 years later after the canal um, and so the railway came between uh, Wolverton and Newport Pagnall um, and it took workers up and down to the Wolverton Works and took children to school. Um, and the train is affectionately known as the Newport Nobby, so some people might remember mm-hmm. remember it because it it ran up until 1963, um, when the line got closed down by beaching in the beaching cuts. Um, but you can still walk along the route of the the railway. It's a redway now, a leisure route, um, and you can still see the Great Linford station platform. Um, it's planted up uh, with beautiful flower beds now, but you can still walk on top of the platform. Um, And up on the lamppost, there's a Great Linford sign that makes you think that, you know, the train is still coming. Um, So we've kind of given a sense of the park, um, but I haven't really explained how it came to be a park from being a a private estate. So when we've spoken to local people about their memories of the park, they've explained how even in the 1950s and 60s, it wasn't opened for members of the public to walk through. Um, It was a private estate. So we were asking if people remembered the Doric seat, but nobody did because they weren't allowed to go
0: there.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you could walk through to go to church on a Sunday um, and for special days, but other than that, it was still owned by Uthwat family or their tenants who lived there in the early 20th century. So
0: could you only get to the church from the park? From
1: so you, you have, you'd have to go to the church through the high street or from across the fields where the Parklands estate is now. Oh, wow. um, so you couldn't just wander around the Parkland at leisure, really. Um, but after the 1970s, the last resident called Stella Uthwot, um sold up the Great Linford estate to the Development Corporation um, and from there it then became public parkland. Um, so the Development Corporation did a number of interventions to make the park kind of accessible for visitors. So they laid down some paths and they put some signage in. Um, but when we took on the park in the 1990s as the Parks Trust, um, we kind of realised that there's more history there than it has been explained. Um, so, in 2015, um, we decided to apply for um, a National Lottery Heritage Fund grant um, under the Parks for People project, which doesn't actually exist anymore but did at the time, um, to basically help us to understand what heritage, what history was there at Great Linford, and then we could decide what to do with it. Um, because people did remember a few things about it and we knew that there was you know, the remnants of a Georgian landscape there but it was trying to understand how we can make it relevant to people of Milton Keynes nowadays um, so we did lots of historic research we employed lots of consultants to help us understand what was there um, and then in 2017 we were um, given permission to actually start doing things in the park because they believed that our project had, had legs um, and that it would be a great thing for local people um, so since 2017, we have been doing lots and lots of work at Great Linford Manor Park. Um, we started off, uh, well, there's, set, there's different layers to the project. So fundamentally, what we wanted to do was restore the historic features that still survive. So a big focus of the project has been the, the water garden ponds. Now, some people who are listening might remember going there you know, two, three years ago. Um, And the ponds were completely enclosed by really, really tall trees, um, which, you know, it had its own charm. But in reality, those trees had been self-seeded in the walls of the Georgian ponds, which I described earlier. And they were having the problem of uh, kind of eroding away the walls. They were dropping their leaves into the water and their sticks and things like that. And the result was that the water was getting all kind of sludged up and it was really stinky in the summer. And there was nothing really living or thriving in the water. Um, and if we left things the way they were the ponds wouldn't be ponds anymore they would have got completely silted up and all that lovely Georgian history would can be completely forgotten so we had to act um so it was a little bit controversial at first because the very first thing we had to do on the project was to remove some trees now people don't like it when we take out trees (laughs) it's a bit controversial (laughs) like I say um but you know it's better to have few really, really good quality trees than lots of bad quality trees in the wrong places. Um,
0: and they're not short on
1: trees at another park. They're are they? not short on trees. <laughs> We're very, very lucky with trees at Milton Um so we had to remove the the larger trees um to kind of reveal the what what was remaining of the Georgian walls. Um but we actually identified one really lovely tree, um which we tree spaded to a different area of the park. So it was a big machine that came in. And kind of scoop the tree out of the ground and put it somewhere else and it's thriving so we're very happy with that um so once the trees were out we could then drain the ponds and then dredge out 250 years worth of rubbish that was in the bottom of them um which we then spread on the banks either side of the ponds um and this over time has regenerated and is now grassed over so you can't tell that it's there It was quite a clever place to hide it a plain sight um, and then that enabled the stonemasons to build up the walls so they've left the Georgian era stone at the bottom And they've just built exactly the same limestone kind of from midway up um, And as the stone ages it will weather and it will all look the same so you mm-hmm. won't be able to tell which is really nice um, We have also improved the flow of the water system. So earlier I was explaining how the water comes out of the spring and goes through the ponds in succession well, that wasn't really working anymore um the development corporation in the 1970s did a few interventions to try and make that work but they didn't do a brilliant job to be honest um and it wasn't working anymore so we had a hydrologist kind of overhaul the whole system and now the water flows beautifully out of the spring it goes into a little basin um which it then overflows into the first pond down the cascade into the second and then it cleverly goes underneath the canal through a culvert and comes out in the fourth pond on the other side, and then it goes down the big cascade and out into the river. So everything is working as it should, even given the drought that we've just had. So we're oh, very happy about brilliant. that. <laughs> um I was talking about the Doric Seat as well, so that's up in the wilderness area, which is now benefiting from some lovely new paths which have been put in. Um but the Doric Seat itself, it was vandalised in the seventies and was basically just ruins. There was nothing really there. So in 2019, some archaeologists from Cotswold Archaeology came along and investigated how much of it was sort of remaining underneath the soil. Um, And they helped us to work out what the foundation area would be, um, which helped us to then build up to what it is today, which is kind of a reinterpretation of what was there originally. So we've built up the foundations to kind of knee height so that visitors can sit on the wall. Um, and then on the front, we've had uh, two bespoke columns made by um, a local metal worker, um, which kind of are kind a of skeletal outline of what the columns would have looked like. Um, so it's kind of an illusion of what the building would be. Um, but we have to be careful because things like this, they are in a public parkland. Um, so we don't want you know it to become a shelter for antisocial behaviour, that kind of thing. So I think it achieves what it's meant to, but it doesn't have to be an enclosed space. Which yeah, is... it
0: gives you the idea of...
1: What used to be there. that's it yeah and you can spot it from the canal which is really lovely Um we have also been just generally making the park more accessible and putting in different interventions for children so rather than having a brightly colored uh, adventure playground which <laughs> the friends crew didn't want us to do and um, we listen to their suggestions um, and we work with local children to create a series of play sculptures through the park which interpret different parts of the history so we've got some horseshoes um which people can climb on which are inspired by the workhorses that pulled along the canal boats and um, we've got a set of beautiful uh wooden sheep they are beautiful <laughs> they're gorgeous which yeah. everyone loves so you've got concrete cows and now you've got wooden sheep um <laughs> which sit just where the animals would have historically grazed just outside the pleasure gardens um, and like numerous other things which children have been really enjoying already um, so we're kind of coming to the end of the project now, um, which is a bit sad for me because I've worked on it my whole time I've been at the Trust. Is there
0: anything still to do? <laughs>
1: There's a few things still to do. So um, just this week we've been carving in um, a couple of verses of poetry around the Springhead, which were written by Mark Neal, who's the Milton Keynes Poet Laureate. Um, and we've been installing all of the signage around the park. So... There's lots of little mile marker bollards which show where you're going between like the water gardens and the wilderness, for example, to help visitors understand how the park works. Um, but we've still got to do the interpretation panels. So they'll, we're kind of refreshing those. Um, and there'll be lots of activity trails for families to do as well, including an alphabet trail where you can go around the park and spot all the different letters of the alphabet and learn about stories that, some of which we've talked
0: about today. You for us what?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't <laughs> remember what you used for. Um, yeah, so it, it's a shame that it's coming to an end, but it isn't really the end, because all of the activities and all of the work that goes on at Great Linfield will be absorbed within the Parks Trust, so we'll keep it going, hopefully, for many years to come. Um, but the kind of next exciting project, Judy was mentioning earlier about the almshouses, um, so we've entered an agreement to lease the almshouses from Milton Keynes Council, Um, because in recent years they've kind of been going into decline the buildings have not been kind of up to scratch anymore they're not really safe to go inside so we wanted a a place for people to go in the park um, because there's not really any indoor space available Um, so what will happen hopefully pending planning permission is that the schoolhouse uh, Julie mentioned will become a residential let and so somebody can live there and rent it Uh, Three of the arms houses will be commercial-let, so people can rent those out for businesses. And then the three that remain, two of them will become kind of interpretation spaces, um, and then one will become a community space for volunteers to have a cup of tea, for storing things, people to have meetings, all those kind of lovely lovely things that we don't get to do (laughs) when you work outdoors all day. Um, so we're really looking forward to that. Um, we're just waiting for lots of surveys to come back. But over the next few years, that'll be a new focus for the park. It's really exciting. It'll help us to tell lots more stories that we can't tell out and about in the park. A little bit more about William Pritchard, for example, um, about the schoolhouse, about lace making. There's, there's so much to do. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to live in the Manor Park. that <laughs> <Yeah>. awesome. Wouldn't <laughs> we all? <laughs> I don't know,
2: actually, maybe the Wi-Fi
0: is not that good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I feel like I basically do live there because I'm going there every day oh, <laughs> yeah it's it's a wonderful project a wonderful park so yeah, I'm very lucky yeah having
0: visited like quite a few times over the last few years and seen the development going on it's um, it's been really lovely actually to see it going kind of back to what it was originally um, and all the, as you say, all the lovely activity stuff that's in there and obviously the art Centre is on site so they do lots of stuff as well and it's just like really come alive in the past few years I think and it's a lovely place to go.
2: Absolutely it is, yes.
0: So. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having us. Thank you. (laughs) Great Linford Manor, that's brilliant. Um, And so if people want to find out more, can they go on the Parks Trust website?
1: Yeah, so we've got a section on the Parks Trust website about heritage in the parks. um, So you can find out about everything that's kind of old that's in public parkland. Um, But the Great Linford Project has its own section of the website. So you can find out all about what we've been doing. But one of our other volunteers, John, does keep a website called Great Linford History Um, I think it's greatlinfordhistory.co.uk. Very good domain name. Um, And that has everything you could possibly want to know about the park and the village.
0: Um, So definitely have a look at that. Okay, we'll link to that in our uh, show notes. Brilliant. Uh, Thanks very much, ladies. Thank you. you. Bye. That's it for
1: this episode. If you've got an idea for a future topic you'd like us to feature, then get in touch with us
2: via social media. We're at MK Museum on Twitter and Facebook, and at Milton Keynes Museum on Instagram. Also, check out our website miltonkeynesmuseum.org.uk.